Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. We are so excited that you've joined us today. Today is a special episode. We've been around for 100 episodes. That's hard to believe. It really is hard to believe. And we feel super honored for any of you who have listened to us 100 times to tell all of these episodes. That's right. That's why for our 100th episode, I thought I would bring you a listener request as a way to thank all of our listeners that have been listening and telling their friends about Buried Motives. We really appreciate you. Yes, we do. We hope that you'll join us for 100 more. And then 100 after that. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) This case has been requested by a few people. Thank you to Brene and Sherry for requesting this one. This Canadian case is truly shocking. Remember the Starcross Lovers case you covered about Charles Starkweather and Caroline Fugate? Of course I do. That was a wild ride. You told us that that murdering couple were one of the inspirations for the movie Natural Born Killers. Today, the murdering couple took their inspiration from that movie. (gasps) No way! Mm -hmm. So we have come full circle. Yes. From one of our beginning cases, now at our hundredth, we are making connections. That's incredible. I think that episode was number three. It was way back at the beginning. This case will have you rethinking if first love is as sweet as all the rom-coms portray it to be. It never is. (laughs) You can't compete with a movie. Well, these two tried. Just more like a horror movie rather than a rom-com. Exactly. In 2005, in the small city of Medicine Hat, Alberta, which I learned during my research is apparently the sunniest place in Canada. Medicine Hat? Yeah, did you know that? I do actually remember going as a child. We had a family friend that lived there, and I do remember it being really warm, but I don't know that I would have suspected it to be the sunniest place in Canada. Apparently it is. And in case any of our listeners think you heard Melissa incorrectly, no, you're right. It is a city called Medicine Hat. (laughs) Sometimes I don't know how we get these names, but we go with them. (laughs) It is an unusual name for a city, but a memorable one. And unfortunately, it would be memorable for another reason, too. In 2005, Mark and Deborah Richardson were living out their fairy tale love. They had met as young adults in a substance abuse program, and they beat the odds and their addictions together. It's not very common that two recovering addicts would be good for one another and be able to strengthen one another. Usually, if one relapses, the other one can, too. Yeah, that can be definitely a slippery slope. I think in the program, they actually advise you not to become involved with someone who is also a recovering addict. It's true. Most recovery programs discourage relationships between two recovering addicts. But Mark and Deborah defied the advice and persevered through their challenges. They held each other accountable and encouraged each other to pursue healthy interests instead. As their troubled past fell behind them, they began a new life together. They got married and they had two children, a little girl Jasmine in 1992 and a son in 1998, whom they named Tyler, but everyone called him by his middle name, Jacob. 
In the early 2000s, the family moved west from Sudbury, Ontario to Alberta and settled in Medicine Hat, both pursuing careers that inspired them. As a family, they were close-knit and enjoyed spending time with one another. Their oldest child, Jasmine, was a sweet girl who enjoyed her mother's passion for Reiki and was an honor student at the new Christian school where she attended. Jacob was described as a beautiful young soul, full of energy, and had a heart of gold. In 2005, now both in their 40s, Mark and Deborah appear to be living the dream. They sound like they are very remarkable people. Yeah, they had overcome adversity. And now they were living what people call the millionaire dream. Two children, boy and a girl. They were both pursuing careers that they loved. Yeah, it sounds like they really created this beautiful life together. Mm -hmm. But that's when things started to change. As their daughter Jasmine entered into her preteen years, she started to venture out of the family's safe cocoon and began experimenting with different things to develop her own unique identity. And that's a pretty common thing at that age. Oh, for sure it is. Mm -hmm. So initially, they didn't really seem concerned about it. One of the things that Jasmine was drawn to was the goth lifestyle, a subculture that is often associated with dark clothes and makeup and usually a like for punk rock music. I feel like almost every generation has that little goth phase at some point in time. Yeah, I think it's common. Mm -hmm. So initially, Mark and Deborah weren't too concerned about this. At the age of 11, Jasmine began to hang out with friends who shared her interest at the local mall, dressing in dark clothes, sporting fishnet, and adopting a love for black eyeliner. This local group at the mall was often referred to as the Mall Rats. This particular group of youth that she started hanging around ranged in age and bonded together over their mutual rejection by other peers. And Jasmine didn't really fit in with that rejection of other peers, but she was drawn to their dress and their attitudes. Well, and at that age, you're discovering who you are. And usually it's like, what harm does eyeliner and some black clothing do? And it's very common for children to try and find their place in life. And choose something that's going to set them apart from everybody else. Right. When you're trying to be an individual and establish who you are, you don't want to be like everyone else. And you're kind of going against the grain of how you've been raised. Right. In the fall of 2005, she started to appear in online chat rooms and the social media platforms of Zexopia, MySpace, and VampireFreaks.com. Most of these were signed up for in November of 2005, and I'm not sure of what her original profile read or if she changed it over time, but when the accounts were shut down, each of the account profiles claimed some shocking things that didn't mesh with the sweet Catholic honor student that Deborah and Mark thought their daughter was. All of her accounts stated that she was older than she was, usually stating an age of 15. Her MySpace account claimed that she was bisexual, Wiccan, and that her heroes were Jeffrey Dahmer, Marilyn Manson, Chris Angel, and Batman. Oh. It listed her interest as kinky stuff, working noises, serial killers, hatchets, plastic spoons, horror movies, and criminal psychology. Oh, I feel like. Sometimes, especially kids around that age, feel like, oh, I'll look really cool if I say I admire Jeffrey Dahmer. I think it's about the shock factor. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Where I don't know that she actually admired Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. But to put him as a hero? Yeah. That's taking it to a whole nother level. That's gross. Her Vampire Freaks account described her again as bisexual and Wiccan, nocturnal, awkward, loud, a deep thinker, and insane. 
her chosen username on Nexopio was Runaway Devil, and she ended her introduction to herself with the words, Welcome to my tragic end. Ooh. Well, it does seem pretty ominous because we're talking about her on a murder podcast, but without that skewed view, it could all have been just someone looking for attention and trying to find her identity, or at least fit into an identity that would gain her friends, like the one she had at the mall. Yeah, that's how I would see it if we didn't know what she actually ended up doing. Right. But the things like mentioning Dahmer and Manson as her heroes? Yeah, those are throwing up some red flags for sure. Right. And even saying her interests are serial killers. But mind you, I guess that's kind of our interest because of what we do. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that, Christy. (laughs) But kinky stuff? What does an 11-year-old know about kinky stuff? We might be surprised what some 11-year-olds know. But again, I feel like she was doing it for, like you said, that shock value. I'm trying to fit in. I want to look cool. I want to look edgy. I'm dressing the dark part, so I'm going to pretend like I'm all dark. Like if I saw an 11-year-old doing that, I would be feeling almost more like, okay, yeah, that's laughable. We know that you're just trying to be, quote unquote, what you think is cooler than you actually are. Yeah, and that's how I view it too, especially since she was hanging out with this group at the mall. They were all different age groups. And so you have to find a way to fit in somewhere. Yeah. And I feel like this is how she was trying to fit in. To stand out amongst the mall rat gang. Right. (laughs) At the time that she was posting all these profiles, the online world was still in its infancy. Online chat rooms and games were prophylytic and provided a way for people, especially teens, to connect with a larger group of people who seemingly understood them in the safety of a virtual world. At the time, not a lot was being considered about internet safety or perps lying on their online profiles to attract unsuspecting victims. Even less was known by parents about monitoring their kids' online activities. You can see how that would happen at the beginning. There wasn't even Netflix, let alone documentaries about catfishing on Netflix. Right. (laughs) And so it was just this new world that was starting to open up and be available to youth at the time. And as we know, parents are usually a little bit farther behind the youth, especially when it comes to technology. It's so true. But thankfully, we have way more information about the dangers that are online now. Because it's been around a while, and we have cases like this to teach us about things like that. Right. But even though Mark and Deborah weren't fully informed about this online world, it was clear that Jasmine was changing in huge ways. They both had experienced rocky teenage years themselves, and they felt that their daughter was forming her own identity, and they were supportive of this, giving her space to explore her new interests. But they weren't blind to the dangers of this new search for identity either. They watched their daughter carefully as they gave her space, something that she wasn't overly thrilled about. They were doing their job as a parent. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which a lot of teenagers will push back about. And that's what Jasmine was doing. It was during this search for a new identity that Jasmine met Jeremy Steinke. Most sources report that the two met for the first time at an underground punk rock concert in January 2006, but there are alternative reports that say the two had actually met before that while Jasmine was hanging out with her goth friends at the mall, and then later attended the concert with the intention of meeting up with Jeremy. But they originally met online? And then in person? No, it sounds like they met in person. Okay. It was either at this concert or, and I tend to believe this one more, that she met him while hanging around with her friends at the mall. Okay. The undisputed part of the story is that when they met, Jasmine was only 12 
nearly half of Jeremy's 23 years. Oh, that's so bad. Mm -hmm. At the time, though, despite their age gap, they became enamored with each other. She's got her nose all scrunched up, listeners. Oh, I'm just thinking of a 12-year-old little girl and a 23-year-old man. Did he think she was older? Because, like, she had lied on her MySpace saying she was 15. Originally, he did believe that she was older, but only up to the age of 15. Which still, you're 23. Mm -hmm. There's such a gap in development there. Like, what is wrong with you at 23 that you're searching after a 15-year-old? Sorry if anybody this has happened to you, but... Well, let me tell you a little bit about Jeremy's background. And not to make excuses for him, because the relationship is totally illegal. But it may help you understand how this happened. Jeremy Allen Steinke was known to hang around younger kids. And by the time he met Jasmine, he already had a criminal history. He was the unofficial leader of the Mall Rats. (laughs) So cool. Yeah, because he was the only one old enough to buy beer. By the kids that hung out at the mall, he was described as a sweet, caring guy that could be loud and funny and that he was a talented musician. They thought the world of him. Oh, they would. I can totally see the younger kids looking up with stars in their eyes at him. But it's him looking down at a 12-year-old that gives me the ick. Yep. At the time, he was seen as the cool, older person that just accepted the younger kids as peers without judgment. Remember, this is a group of kids that are struggling to fit in because of the lifestyle they've chosen. Right. It's funny how perspective changes from person to person. If you saw a 23-year-old hanging out with younger teens, you probably wouldn't be thinking about him as a positive influence. But these kids thought he was great. No, as a parent especially, you'd be like, why is that creep hanging around with my younger kid? Yeah, that's exactly the ick factor that you're talking about. Jeremy was born to Mae Jackson on January 15th, 1983. Jeremy's mother was a self-proclaimed alcoholic that suffered from depression and severe anxiety. His father was also an alcoholic and often abusive, beating Jeremy and his siblings and his mother. Often Mae was beaten in front of her children and Jeremy was repetitively struck with objects and dragged around by his ears by his father. And that hurts. If you've never been pulled on your ear, it is painful. Yeah. There were lots of reports that he was struck repetitively on his head. Oh. And it is so disruptive to a developing psyche to watch one parent beat the other parent. Oh, I can only imagine. And feel helpless and not be able to do anything about it. There's a lot of trauma that comes from that. Unfortunately, when his mother finally got a divorce, leaving her husband, her second husband wasn't much of an improvement, and he too would beat Jeremy. The third time's a charm rule didn't hold up in Jeremy's family either. Jeremy's second stepfather followed in the footsteps of the previous two father figures, and once slammed the child's head into the deep freeze hard enough to cause a concussion. Oh, that is so bad. Mm Mm-hmm. We know how much head trauma can play a factor in cases like this. Exactly. And this poor kid, three father figures in his life, and they're all dirtbags. That is the only role model he ever had. Because subsequent boyfriends would continue the tradition of abuse. And I did find one claim of sexual abuse when he was a young teenager as well, but I couldn't substantiate it. That is a lot of trauma for one child to go through. It is. And school was no reprieve for the boy either. He moved around a lot and lacked a stable routine at home. 
He was immature for his age and was often teased by other children and called Stinky as a play on his last name. And he had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which made it difficult for him to pay attention in school and to make new friends. And which I assume would also have made him a bigger target with these dirtbag father figures because they wouldn't have known how to handle it and would have just thought he was misbehaving. That's really sad. It is. By the age of 13, Jeremy had developed depression and by 15 was cutting and had to be medicated for it. He would tell his mother that he wished he was dead, wished he was never born. He was prescribed medication, but it didn't seem to do a lot for him. Around the same time as his depression worsened, he began to develop an alter ego that he could hide behind. An ego that didn't have any problems that Jeremy had in his real life. This alter ego was a 300-year-old werewolf. He often told his friends that he craved the taste of blood, and even took to wearing a vial of what he claimed was blood around his neck. Was it really blood? It seems that it was. Okay. As a 300-year-old werewolf, though, he was invincible and immune to the teasing and the alienation that he felt around his peers. Well, you could see why he'd pick that, because it's a very powerful, mystical creature. And a lone creature. Right. When the alter ego wasn't enough, Jeremy would add in marijuana use daily and alcohol as a teenager. Oh, that's a lot by your teens to be going through. Mm Mm-hmm. I expect the family violence, the alter ego, and drug use all added up to a deadly combination, as it became evident in Jeremy's behavior and his frequent violent outburst. He got into several altercations with others that came to blows. He had previous assault charges and domestic violence investigations, but all had been dropped or were outstanding when he met Jasmine. There are some that theorize as well that based on Jeremy's personality, his lack of impulse control, and his immaturity, he may have suffered from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But I found no reports again that could substantiate this theory either. He just wasn't given the proper testing for it, probably. Right. If that diagnosis were true, though, it would give some understanding as to why his mother noticed that he always fit in with kids younger than himself, and why he lacked judgment skills and had poor reasoning. Yeah, because he could have then been functioning at their ages. Right. It could have been why he saw nothing wrong with dating Jasmine, who he originally believed was 15, and continued to date her when he was told that she was younger. Hmm. When the two met, Jeremy was a depressed high school dropout that had just tried to hang himself a few days before in the trailer where he lived with his mom. The two quickly became obsessed with each other and sought ways to get together, whether in person or online. Well, that does give some more reasoning as to why he was hanging out with her not justifying it but gives us some insight as to where he was at in life at that time and how it could happen yeah i still don't like it but i'm understanding it a little bit more no it's definitely ick he's still old enough to know that this is illegal right he's still old enough to know better yeah jasmine and jeremy would hang out together and attend underground punk concerts together It wasn't long before the relationship turned sexual, a completely illegal relationship. In Canada, the legal age to consent is 16. There are some exceptions made for 14 and 15-year-olds who are in relationships, but both individuals have to be the same authority level and still be within five years of each other. That was not the situation. This situation was completely illegal, not to mention just gross. Yeah. 
It wouldn't be until later that Jeremy would learn Jasmine's real age, but even then he wouldn't express any remorse for having a sexual relationship with a minor and saw no problem with the power imbalance and influence that just their ages alone would afford him. Oh, for sure. He used his mother's relationship with a man 13 years older than herself as a justification that age doesn't mean anything when it comes to love. Sorry, Jeremy. It does when you're children. For your mom, that's a whole different ballpark than when it comes to a 12-year-old little girl. Right? And it does mean something in the eyes of the law. Yeah. But I do think it gives some insight that he couldn't understand why it was wrong. And it just really irks me when people try to give examples to justify, but he's not even using the same thing. Like I said, you're talking about adults, and then you're talking about an adult and a child. Totally different ball game. Doesn't matter if your mom dated someone 50 years older than her. She's a grown adult. Well, apparently this relationship happened when she was a teen as well. Oh, great. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, it's just that was kind of the norm for him. It wasn't an abnormal thing. Right. And look how well it turned out for his mom. Right. That's what he should be looking at. Yeah, she got beat every single day. It was not good, Jeremy. Well, he didn't identify with his step-parents or his father. Right. He was a good guy that was going to take care of Jasmine. Oh, man. Jasmine's parents drew the line with the 23-year-old boyfriend. Yeah, and so should they. They were okay with all of the black eyeliner, the fishnet, her exploring her identity. Because that's not going to hurt her. Eyeliner washes off. Fishnets come off at the end of the day. Right. But a 23-year-old, that's going to mess up your life. Especially a sexual relationship with a 23-year-old. Yeah, they're trying to protect her. Mark and Deborah were not happy with Jasmine's new love interest or any of her new behaviors of drawing crosses and weird tattoos all over her body and sneaking away for days at a time to be with Jeremy. For days? She would just take off. Her parents put more restrictions on her freedoms, but it didn't seem to help. The change in her behavior was drastic and was noted not only by her parents, but by her teachers and friends at school. The child, once described as happy and kind, was now disrespectful and rude. Even friends tried to express concern over her relationship with Jeremy, but she shunned it all. The two communicated regularly in online chat forums over several different platforms. Jeremy's online bios, like Jasmine's, were shocking. But I honestly think that that was the point. Yeah. Does he say that he's a werewolf? Mm hmm. Oh, man. On one site, he claims to be 59 and boasts about his band called Project Status Quo. His Bolt account claimed that his name was Jack and that he was 23 and was a gothic individual who believes in blood destruction, guts, gore, and greed, whose legs were snowboarding, BMX, and punk rock. This account sported a picture with Jasmine with a fake gun with a caption that read, Kill them all, babe. Ugh. This isn't cool, Jeremy. Like, he thinks he's so cool, but having your 12-year-old little girlfriend with a fake gun? Kill him, babe. Who do you think you are? That's not okay. He was glorifying, though, their favorite movie, which was Natural Born Killers. Yeah, which ties back to our episode three. Right. In February of 2006, Jeremy opened his Nextopia account and gave himself the username Soul Eater. He wrote that he was a 300-year-old reincarnated werewolf who loved the taste of blood and wore a vial of it around his neck. His interests were listed as pain and razor blades. 
And this would be the main account where he and Runaway Devil would make their plans. Oh, no. In a message to Jasmine, Jeremy wrote, You are a sight for sore eyes, and I miss you more than killing people. Can we get together and kill people together? And it seems like a very bizarre statement without context. But the two were obsessed with the movie Natural Born Killers. They viewed it as the best love story of all time. Oh my gosh. That tells you almost everything we need to know about them right there. And if you were actually a killer, you're not posting on all these sites. I miss you more than I do killing people. Let's go kill, baby. Right. They're just sensationalizing all of these immature feelings that they're having. Right. Which is so frustrating to me, especially the more that we research these cases, that they're just talking about killing like it's so cool and so nonchalantly where there's real victims. Like this is not a cool thing that happens when people get murdered. Exactly. They have no understanding of the aftermath of it. Right. But do you remember the premise of that movie or what started the killing spree? It was killing the parents, wasn't it? Right, because the parents had an issue with a younger girl dating an older man. Oh, man. Killing became a common theme in Jeremy and Jasmine's post as they expressed their love to one another. To them, love and being willing to kill for each other meant the same thing. It's just so wrong. It's just so twisted. But that was their perspective. When Jasmine's parents got sight of these messages, Mark and Deborah forbade the relationship, took away Jasmine's computer access, and sought counseling for their daughter. They feared for their daughter's safety and her mental health, which seemed to be deteriorating rapidly. Jasmine went along with therapy, but only as a way to appease her parents. She didn't see anything wrong with her behavior or choices. She just wanted to get her parents off her back and get her computer back. When asked why she enjoyed dressing and acting the way she did, she said she liked the idea of scaring people because it made her feel more powerful. Jasmine was diagnosed with conduct disorder and oppositional defiance disorder. The young lovers were irate that her parents wouldn't let them see each other. Unknowingly, her parents are falling into the plot of the movie. Not even realizing it. Right. Jasmine felt that what her parents were doing was unfair and wrong, and she even attempted multiple times to have herself placed in foster homes because she felt her parents were being abusive and controlling. Oh my goodness. Cases like this are so frustrating because she has good parents and they love her and they're trying to do what is best. But sometimes when you have that defiant child, the more you try to keep something from them, the more it drives them towards that person. And then it's like a double-edged sword because you can't continue to allow it. But by stopping it, it's fueling her fire. Right. The parents are totally between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. And it's all brought on because of her skewed perspective. Her attempts to be placed in foster homes were to no avail because there was no danger of her staying with her parents. Yeah, she didn't need a foster home. At 12 years old, she was headstrong and convinced that Jeremy, her first love, would be her only love. The therapy seemed to help for a time, at least in the eyes of Jasmine's parents. They believed that the progress was promising enough that they felt Jasmine had earned her computer privileges back. Jasmine used this newly restored freedom to arrange sneaking out to see Jeremy and to make other plans. Jasmine sent Jeremy a message that stated, quote, Roar! I hate them! So I have this plan. 
It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Soul Eater responded, quote, Well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with the details and stuff. Oh my, that's so eerie knowing what's going to happen. Did she actually say roar? Yeah, she said roar. It's just so immature. Roar. <laughs> that's how angry she was, Christy. I can see grr, but I guess she's talking to a werewolf, so she had to say that's roar. Right. She spelled it R-A-W-R. Rawr. 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 She likes kinky stuff. Uh, and she's 12. She's 12. I don't care how mad you are at your parents. I can't imagine ever having written the words or thought the words or said the words that I wanted to kill them. And these were loving parents that had taken care of her well. Yeah, have given her a good life Mm -hmm. and have been accepting of her exploring who she is. A lot of parents would have put their foot down way before that. Right. And there are a lot of parents that argue that maybe it was their permissiveness that started her on this path. No. But I just don't see that at all. Uh Uh-uh. We are not (laughs) victim blaming. I feel like she had fabulous parents. I think so, too. They did what they could to protect their daughter while allowing her to grow up. Mm -hmm. But the idea to kill had been born and over the next month took hold in these two lovers' lives. At first, it sounds like it was just an offhanded, out-of-anger comment that Jasmine voiced to her friends. And no one took it seriously. It was just spoken out of anger. But as Jasmine and Jeremy's anger swelled, this offhanded idea became their go-to thought process, a fix-all for their problems, and it grew and solidified more and more in their delusional minds, making it a viable solution to the problem that they faced. Less than a month before the murder, Jeremy posted a message riddled with spelling mistakes on his MySpace blog ranting against Jasmine's parents. Quote, Payment. My lover's rents are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what's going on. They just assume. As their greed continues to consume, she is slowly going insane. She continues to thank that I came into her life to help her out and to stop what they keep trying to shout. Their throats I want to slit. They will regret what they have done especially when I see to it that they are gone. They shall pay for their insolence. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. That is so scary. And this didn't send a red flag up to anybody? Nobody reported this? No, because all of their messages had these kind of undertones. Right. And nobody took it seriously. Right. One psychologist would later point out that the rage that Jeremy felt, though, towards Jasmine's parents could have been a misplaced need to protect someone he loved. Jeremy wrongly viewed Jasmine's parents as abusive, and therefore this was his opportunity to be the hero in the story and stop the abuse. Remember, Jeremy had always witnessed his mother being abused, and he did express regret of not being able to take care of his mother when she was abused. Hmm, That's interesting. Plus, he would have felt very powerless being abused himself. Right. So you can see those two things combined would be pretty deadly. But he expresses even more powerlessness when he saw his mother and siblings abused. Huh. As the oldest, he felt like it was his job to protect. And now he felt an overwhelming urge to protect Jasmine. Ooh. You can see how twisted it all becomes. 
On April 22, 2006, Jeremy was watching Natural Born Killers for the umpteenth time with some friends when Jasmine called to say she couldn't take it anymore and begged him to help her sneak out. Whether she asked him to do more is debatable. Later, she would say that she didn't ask him. She just wanted to sneak out. And he says that she asked him to kill her parents. Okay. Either way, she was growing increasingly frustrated and angry that her parents were keeping her away from him. That night, Jeremy told his friends that he and his girlfriend were planning something similar to the movie that they were watching, but that the fishbowl scene would have to be different because Jasmine's family didn't have a fish, and that they would kill without sparing her little brother. Because in the movie, they spared the young girl's brother. They had planned that Jasmine would do that kill personally. Ugh. It's really sad to read their online comments over them debating whether to kill her brother or not. Yeah, just so carelessly. So callous. And her little brother had nothing to do with her parents' control over them. No. He wasn't enforcing any of the rules. And that's where they're just having this natural-born killer's attitude of, let's just kill them all. Right. To them, they had wrapped up killing with this love-lust that they were feeling toward each other. Yeah. Jeremy began to consume large amounts of alcohol and drugs. Large amounts. Prior to Jasmine's call, he had already drank a full case of beer. Oh. After the call, he drank a bottle of wine, which he called vampire wine, and then chased it down with a gram of cocaine, and according to Jeremy, topped it all off with ecstasy. What? How was he even walking? I have no idea. I guess it was the werewolf blood in him. That's right. Werewolves have a higher tolerance for those things, don't you know, Christy? <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> Jeremy tried to enlist a friend, Jordan Atfield, to help him with the murders because he was afraid, if he didn't go through with the plan, that Jasmine would leave him. When Jordan refused, Jeremy threatened to implicate him and others if he was caught. Jordan and the others present all thought Jeremy was just crazy and was talking smack and refused to help him. But Jeremy wasn't talking smack. Under the cover of darkness, Jeremy snuck into the Richardson split-level home on Cameron Road in the well-established middle-class neighborhood in Medicine Hat. Dressed all in black, wearing a neoprene ski mask, and carrying a knife in the pocket of his hoodie, he entered the house through a window, leaving behind his footprints as evidence. Did Jasmine open the window for him? There were some that suspected that she had, but I didn't see that in the official reports. Okay. His clumsiness was thought to have alerted Deborah, and she went to investigate the sounds of him entering the house. Oh, his footprints were found on a toy box in the basement that had been overturned. So I'm picturing in my head he came in through the window, put his foot down on a toy box, and it slipped from his weight on top of the toy box and spilled over. Can you imagine, though, being woken up in the dead of the night? Do you get out of bed? Do you wake your spouse for them to go investigate the noise? No, I would probably get up. I'm just thinking in the past if I've ever, like heard something i would usually get up but i often for me i look to my dog is my dog calm and fine then it's probably fine because even there was one night it was late at night and all of a sudden my dog just went crazy and there was like nobody around but he was so alert standing staring straight at our front door and he would not leave it alone he just stood there barking and that was very uncommon for him to just all of a sudden in a dead sleep jump up and guard the door so I went around and locked the doors and the windows, and it did have me a little on edge. Did you go out and investigate? 
Not outside. That's horror movie 101, girl. <laughs> you don't go outside and look. <laughs> I'm smarter than that. <laughs> but if it was in my home, if I heard like a crash, yeah, I would get up and go look. I would probably think it was one of my kids or something. Who knows? It would take me a long time to get out of bed because I am such a scaredy cat that even when I hear a noise, I'm like, nope, I'm just going to pretend I didn't. <laughs> oh, no, I wouldn't be able to go back to sleep. I would have to get up and go look. Oh, I don't go back to sleep, but I don't get up either. <laughs> you just lay there with the covers <laughs> over your head. That's right. <laughs> no, that's worse. You have to go and look and then you can at least feel a little bit better. Nope. I have to lay there terrified all night long. <laughs> Unless I can wake my husband up to get him to go look. <laughs> yeah, I go look <laughs> if I'm a little worried. But for Deborah, she had a child that had been sneaking out. So maybe she thought that was what was happening. And so maybe that's why she didn't think twice about getting up to investigate this sound. Right. And I have a child who is a night owl and has insomnia. So I would have done the same. Right. It's a normal thing for you to go and investigate. Yeah. Not uncommon anyways. Mm -hmm. Deborah was in her nightshirt when she went to investigate and was probably terrified when she came face to face with her daughter's 23-year-old boyfriend in their home high as a kite. Yeah, I cannot imagine the terror that would have run through her. No. She screamed, waking Mark and spurring Jeremy into action. He began to viciously stab at her. Later, Jeremy would claim that he had only been sneaking in to help Jasmine sneak out and had no intention of killing her family. He said he only brought the knife because he always carried one around for protection. Yeah, not in the pocket of your hoodie. Right. He tried to claim in his intoxicated state, Deborah's scream is what caused him to strike out in a panic. No, he could have knocked her out. He could have pushed her to the ground. He did not have to start stabbing her to death. And who sneaks in to help somebody sneak out? Right. It doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, baloney. We're calling it. Mark ran downstairs to the screams, grabbing the only weapon he could find on his way, a screwdriver. Oh. But it was too late. Deborah had been stabbed 12 times, the fatal blow being a 12-inch stab wound that pierced her heart. Oh, my goodness. Can you even imagine Mark coming down the stairs and finding that? No. Mark, seeing the love of his life dying, went straight into fight mode to protect the rest of his family that was upstairs. Yeah. Would your brain have even commuted that this was Jeremy? Or would you just think this was an intruder in your home? Oh, I think a hooded figure you would just think was an intruder. Yeah. A vicious struggle ensued. One man was fighting for his life and family, and the other was hopped up on so many drugs, it was like he was immune to pain and injury. Yeah. Mark stabbed at Jeremy with a screwdriver and gouged his eye with his thumb. But during the battle, he was repetitively stabbed and eventually he weakened from the blood loss. Mark's last words were why. To which Jeremy responded, quote, it's what your daughter wanted. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine Mark fighting for his family and then to hear that? No, because up until that point, he probably never would have dreamt that his little girl would have wanted this to happen. No. And even after when this is being investigated, there are so many that still believe that Jasmine couldn't have wanted this actually to happen to her parents. Mark died in a fighter's stance. His arms were still raised above his head with loose fists in a room splashed with his and Deborah's blood. He had been stabbed 24 times. Oh, nine of them were in his back. Oh my gosh. The fight had been a loud one. 
and both Jasmine and Jacob were aware something horrific was going on downstairs. What happened next to Jacob is not well understood. There are a few different accounts given by Jasmine and Jeremy on how the eight-year-old died. Jacob was found upstairs in his blood-soaked bed, having been choked and stabbed multiple times before having his throat slashed. Oh, His prized toy lightsaber was just a short distance from his body. It, too, was covered in blood. Being a toy, it had been unable to stand up to a real weapon. That's so sad. He was trying to be brave in his last moments. Yeah. So as an eight-year-old, he grabs his closest thing that he thinks is going to protect him. Jeremy would later say that Jacob's death was carried out by Jasmine. He said that when he came upstairs, Jasmine met him in the kitchen with a kiss. He stayed in the kitchen while she went to the next level where he could hear her talking to Jacob. But he couldn't make out what was being said. So he went into Jacob's room where Jasmine was with her little brother. That's when he saw Jasmine standing over her brother who was lying on his back in his bed and she was cutting his throat. Jasmine would first claim that Jeremy had slit her brother's throat. After she tried to calm the boy that was crying and saying that he was scared and too young to die. Later, she would state that she had tried to smother her brother with his pillow while she comforted him. But when that didn't work, she stabbed him, causing the small boy to make sickening, gurgling sounds. She said then, Jeremy finished the boy by slitting his throat. Later at trial, when Jasmine would admit to taking part in her brother's death, she would justify her decision by saying that she didn't want him to grow up an orphan. What a dirtbag. I just can't even imagine killing your own brother. No, as siblings, you look out for each other. And he's eight. You know how he doesn't grow up as an orphan? You don't kill his parents. Right, you made him an orphan. Yeah. And then you make the decision that it's better that he doesn't grow up at all? And I'm sorry, but they planned ahead of time that he was going to be murdered. Yes, it is documented that they were talking about and discussing whether they should kill him or not. Right. So this was part of the plan all along. She's trying to make it sound like it was a sympathy killing, but it was not. Well, in their planning, it was a sympathy killing. That's why they were going to follow through with his murders, because they didn't want him to grow up an orphan. Yeah. Bullcrap. Right? <laughs> Like, then don't make him an orphan, like you said. Don't kill your parents. Yeah. Simple solution. After annihilating the family, Jeremy and Jasmine quickly washed up in the bathroom, and Jeremy began to get antsy. He fled the house while Jasmine was packing her belongings. He says he puked after leaving the home, and I believe he also broke the passenger window of a white pickup truck that was in the driveway before driving back to his own home without Jasmine. Jasmine continued to collect her things along with her mother's bank card. Before catching a taxi to Jeremy's house 25 minutes later, she ran down to the 7-Eleven and withdrew cash. I assume she was taking out cash to fund their getaway. And even her getting a taxi from her house to Jeremy's shows just how juvenile she is. Like that's direct evidence of you fleeing the crime scene. Well, neither one of them gave any thought to what was going to happen afterwards. Yeah, they're just going to Mallory and Mickey it. No problem. Exactly. And their immaturity is evident in a lot of their decisions that they make after the crime. Which, thankfully, they're sloppy. It makes them easy to catch. Yeah. Because after killing Jasmine's family, they went to an all-day drinking party about a kilometer from the crime scene. There they boasted of the murder to their friends. 
showing off Jeremy's blackened eye, all the while laughing and kissing as they described the murders. James Wally, a friend of Jeremy's, said that Jeremy boasted he gutted Jasmine's parents like fish. Nobody really took them seriously. That was until the news reports started appearing later that night. Then the friends started to make reports to the police. Good. Unfortunately, after listening to Jeremy and Jasmine brag about the murders, they had a friend, Casey Lannister, and another friend, an unnamed miner, agree to wipe splotches of blood off the seats of Jeremy's truck, park it out of sight, and then drive the two out of the city. The miner traveling with them said that Jeremy and Jasmine excitedly searched newspaper articles looking for news of their crimes. While Jasmine and Jeremy were partying on April 23rd, Jacob's neighborhood friend came over to play with Jacob. Oh, no. Instead of finding some leisurely Sunday fun, no one answered the door. The curious little boy peeked into the front window, which peered into the lower level of the home. What he saw, I'm sure, gave him nightmares for a very long time. And the boy ran all the way home to tell his mother. I can't even imagine how traumatic that would have been. For a young boy? No. That would live with him forever. Yeah. His mother called the police, and at 1 p.m., a single police officer arrived at the scene to investigate. He, too, peered through the window and immediately called for backup. As police searched the home, they found Mark and Deborah in the bloodbath that was now the family's basement. Both had exsanguinated from their wounds. The biggest shock of all was when they found Jacob in his bed. The bed was soaked and the child's toys were splattered in his blood. This discovery was heartbreaking to the most seasoned officers at the scene, and it would continue to haunt them for the rest of their lives. Well, and Medicine Hat is not a high crime area. This would have been so shocking. It's a close-knit community. Yeah. Having cleared the house and being satisfied that they had found all the victims, the police began the extensive job of collecting evidence. That's when one of the officers noticed that the family's picture showed a fourth family member, one that was missing from the scene. Initially, they thought that Jasmine had been kidnapped and they ordered an Amber Alert for the child they feared for. But it wasn't long before they learned that she was actually one of the dirtbags, not one of the victims. Police were tipped off by evidence they found on Jasmine's computer and in Jasmine's junior high school locker. There they found a very disturbing comic strip. Jasmine had drawn a picture depicting a girl setting a house on fire with her family inside, then fleeing the scene with her boyfriend. As they gathered preliminary evidence, the police quickly identified that Jasmine and Jeremy were their prime suspects, and the two were fairly easy to track. They were found in Leader, Saskatchewan, 130 kilometers from Medicine Hat, sleeping in a truck together. Their escape plan, or lack of one, showed the couple's immaturity. And they were blabbing to everybody as they went along, how they had gutted her parents like a fish. Oh, absolutely. And asking friends to clean up after them. Hey, can you park my truck and hide it? Wipe down the seats? Yeah. This was not a minor thing that you guys did. No, but they saw it that way. They saw it just as a means to an end so they could be together. Jeremy and Jasmine were arrested immediately. Because of Jasmine's age and the laws in Canada that protect minors, Her family's names were withdrawn from the media to protect her identity, and she would be known in the court systems just as J.R. The two were allowed to communicate at first with each other through letters that the police were happy to deliver back and forth between the two lovers. Of course, they were happy to do this because they were reading all of the notes and collecting evidence from them. 
Oh, yeah, you'd hope they would slip up. Right. On April 26, Jasmine wrote, quote, Never has a person affected me so much. Always will there be something missing without you and me. My lawyer tells me we are legends. Ha, huh. closer to immortality it would seem. Monday, I'm being moved to Calgary. Sadness. I need to stay in contact. Two days after receiving her letter, on April 28th, Jeremy replied, quote, Dear Jazz, I love you more than life itself. I've added you to my visitors list, so once you're released, please visit after. Never forget how much I care for you or that I love you. We can keep visiting each other till we can be together again. Without you, this life isn't worth living. Kisses. The thought of being with you is all that is helping me stay somewhat sane. We shall be together again, I promise. Stay true to your promises, and I shall to mine. I wish I could hold you right now. Stay strong and continue to write me, please. I need you. I love you. I miss you. Kisses and hugs. Your lover, Jeremy. P.S. You said you wanted to get engaged? Then here's the cue. Will you marry me? If so, then it is a verbal agreement. Jasmine wrote back, yes. Puke. I puke on them all. Is that not the wildest letter? This is while they're sitting in jail yeah. and they're writing about how, oh, we're going to be together. Like they have no understanding that, uh, no, you're not. The only place you're going to be together in has a lot of fire and is really hot. That's where you'll get to be together. It seems like Jeremy thought she was going to get out fairly quickly. Like you're going to get out right away and then come visit me till I get out. Right. He believed that she would not be held responsible at all. Hmm. The letters continued until the police were confident that they had collected enough evidence. Then contact between the two was cut off completely. It was determined that the two would be tried separately. Jasmine was taken to the Calgary Detention Center for Youth Offenders and was tried first. Because of her age, a publication ban was imposed on June 4th on all forms of media for her part in the crimes. But it was a little bit of a mute point because her name had been released during the Amber Alert. All right. So people knew that she was somehow involved with this crime. And someone like this, I don't even feel like her name should have been protected. Well, wait till you hear what her sentence is. At first, she denied any involvement in the murders and stated that she was madly in love with Jeremy. But as the separation between the two was enforced by their incarceration, she ended the relationship, and she began to say that Jeremy was solely responsible for the murders. Hmm. It's funny how fast love fizzles when you're trying to preserve yourself. Right? Yeah. That's the end of that first love relationship. Wait a minute. I might actually go to jail. I better pin this all on him. Mm-hmm. During her trial, Jasmine admitted to saying she wanted her parents dead, but claimed she had no idea anyone would take her comments about killing her family seriously. She admitted to trying to choke her brother and stabbing him once, but that she was pressured by Jeremy to do so because he had already killed her parents. She was adamant that Jeremy had slit her brother's throat. Yeah, I'm not buying it. I think if you really were shocked by this, you would be trying to stop him. If it were me and that was my little brother, I would die trying to protect him. I would have had stab wounds all over my arms trying to protect him. Right? You would have aborted the mission. 
Yeah, they would have found me dead next to my little brother. When asked why she helped Jeremy commit the crime, she said, I loved him so much, I thought it would bring us closer together. Yeah, but really, how much did you love him? Because now you've turned on him and you murdered your entire family. Even to try to smother your little brother and stab him, even that one act of stabbing, that's showing some pretty good intent there. Mm-hmm. But it was more than one stab wound that the little boy received. Right. I don't know if I'm buying it that she had no idea that he was actually going to kill them. I think the big debate in this case comes from was she being so manipulated and under Jeremy's control that he thought this was all just so cool to do. That's why she went through with it. She was so wrapped up in this idea that she loved him and for them to be together, her parents needed to die. Did she truly believe that or was she truly a dirtbag that just wanted her parents dead? I think it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. It's always both. Yeah. Because she initiated some of that conversation. It wasn't like he was always talking about like, oh, we got to kill your parents. We got to kill your parents. She's like, oh, I can't wait till they're dead. Right. She initiated the conversations in the online chat rooms. Right. The jury didn't buy her story that she had been an innocent bystander. On July 9th, 2007, Jasmine was convicted of three counts of first degree murder After a five-week trial and three hours of deliberation, she is the youngest person in Canada to be convicted of multiple murders. Although her psychological assessments are not allowed to be officially released, there were several statements made about her state of mind. In her pretrial report, she was described as seriously disturbed. And at her sentence hearing on October 21st, the court heard that she suffered from dependency issues, anxiety, and depression, and was prone to immature problem-solving and wistful fantasies. Psychiatric reports stated that Jasmine, at the time, did not show any remorse or acceptance of criminal responsibility for her role in the death of her family. She did not recognize she committed a crime, nor did she have any insight into her psychological condition. Ooh, that is scary. To be so cold-hearted at age 12? A complete lack of awareness. Okay, So maybe, and I don't believe this, but even if she had no idea, would you not be a blubbering mess? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't know he was going to do that. You would be showing those kinds of emotion. You would still feel some part or some guilt over what had occurred. Absolutely, you would. Her reaction was very atypical. It was. On November 8th, 2007, Jasmine, now at the age of 14, was sentenced to 10 years. Ugh. The sentence is the maximum period of supervision that can be imposed on a young person in Canada. Canada, we have to do better. Yeah, I had a hard time accepting this. Her sentence was further broken down into four years in a youth psychiatric rehabilitation program, followed by a four and a half year period of supervision in the community. She was given credit for the 18 months already spent in custody. This is so absurd, honestly. It's just shocking. Yeah. Three lives. She took three lives. Even if she didn't hold the knife for all of them, she did. She played a part in it. Yeah. So she didn't even have to live behind bars. No, she was in a psychiatric rehabilitation program. Oh. And for such a short time. Very, very short. Like she's still going to be young and not making great decisions by the time she's out. Well, we're going to come back to Jasmine because I want to tell you what happened with Jeremy in the meantime. When Jasmine was transferred to Calgary at the beginning, Jeremy remained in Medicine Hat in solitary confinement 
until he too was transferred to Calgary to the Peter Lougheed Forensic Unit for assessment. During the transfer, he was put into the transport with an undercover officer. The undercover agent got Jeremy talking by appealing to his ego. The undercover officer said, You're famous, brother. And Jeremy said, quote, Yeah, so I've heard. Me and my old lady have become legends. Through the conversation, it became clear that Jeremy did not grasp the seriousness of what he had done. He talked about how he and Jasmine were going to get married and settle in Germany in a castle when they got released. He also expressed his complete love and devotion for Jasmine. He told the undercover officer, quote, I guess, I guess me and my girlfriend just started our own love legacy. She, she says it's like the next closest step to immortality. Every night I pray for her and I wish her sweet dreams and stuff. I mean, it really sucks because when we're within a certain vicinity of each other, we can like sense each other's presence and like, like we're soulmates. Jeremy didn't understand why his lawyer was discouraging any contact between him and Jasmine. He shared his confidence in Jasmine's love for him with the undercover agent. He said, quote, I've got a really good girl and I, I don't want to lose her. That's, that's the biggest, my biggest fear right now. Like in, she swears that she's never going to betray any aspect of our relationship. And as soon as she gets released, she's going to come visit me and everything like that. And she's going to be there for me when I get released. But I'm putting all my faith into her. I'm worshipping her more than I've ever worshipped anything. Little did he know, Jasmine had already begun to turn on him at this point. Interestingly, during this interaction, Jeremy's versions of events was already beginning to differ from Jasmine's. He said he tried to talk Jasmine out of murder, feeling that running away was the solution to their problems. Jasmine's sadness over their separation is what had spurred Jeremy to agree to the murder plan. He described the course of events like this, quote, I don't remember a lot of it. I just remember standing there in her basement expecting her dad to come downstairs. Instead, it was her mom. And instantly I freaked out and got her. She screamed. He came barreling down the stairs and came at me real fast. The last thing I really remember was him. And after him attempting to stab me, him lying on the ground asking me why. And I said she wanted it this way. And that was it. Then I went upstairs and watched my girlfriend cut her brother's throat. It didn't bother her at all either. She didn't cry or anything. In fact, the next day, when we were out on the road, she was laughing about it. She's got a few screws loose too. Hmm. It's interesting because he's freely admitting to the things that he did. So why wouldn't he just admit to killing the son, especially if that was going to spare the love of his life? Right? I really feel that he is that immature that he's just telling the story like it is. Right. Because if he was thinking in a more advanced way, he would know that if I tell them that she slit his throat, she might go to jail. So I can't say that. Where I feel like he's probably being truthful. Because then why wouldn't he just blame everything on her? He's taking accountability for what he did. And I don't believe that she was sad and crying. They went out partying. They cleaned up, probably still had blood on them in some spots, and went out partying all night and bragged about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm leaning toward believing him. 
And really at this point in this time, he doesn't think that he's talking to anybody of authority. He thinks he's talking to another inmate. Right. And so there is the thought process that maybe he was trying to appear more macho than he actually was. But if you were trying to appear more macho to another inmate, wouldn't you take the credit for killing somebody else too? Yeah, especially an innocent little child. Right. Yeah. So I do believe that this is probably the closest version of events. And Jeremy's version of events doesn't change as much as Jasmine's does. Well, and Jasmine changed on a dime when she started throwing Jeremy under the bus. Mm -hmm. Much more conniving. Right. So really, who manipulated who? I think it was a perfect storm of where they were both at in their lives to be manipulated by each other. Yeah. I don't think as a lot of people do, that Jasmine was an innocent party that was manipulated just by this older man. No, not at all. Once in Calgary, Jeremy's lengthy assessment concluded that he was fit to stand trial. During his trial in November of 2008, in front of a six-man and six-woman jury, Jeremy denied the words exchanged with Mark that night of the murder. You mean about saying that his daughter wanted it? Right. I think this is when he clues in that he can't throw Jasmine under the bus. His lawyers tried to play off his conversation with the undercover officer as just an immature boy trying to appear tougher than he was. Jeremy told the jury that he had never planned to murder anyone that night. Jeremy's lawyers tried to run with that line and say that the murder wasn't premeditated, that it had occurred at the spur of the moment under the influence of substances when he was disorientated. This was hard to convince the jury of in light of all of his online conversations. The last time that he had logged in to his Vampire Freaks account on April 21st at 8 a.m., he commented on a friend's page that he wanted to do, quote, morbid stuff to Jasmine's parents. Oh, he totally had it planned. They both did. You don't come over to help someone sneak out and throw a knife in the front pocket of your hoodie. Right. I think that they had been planning this for a while. And maybe the spur of the moment thing was that she had called and asked him that night. Right. But they knew it was going to happen. If he really was just trying to help her sneak out, he would have been waiting on the street with his truck. Right. Sneak out quietly. I'm here to get you. You don't sneak in to sneak somebody out. With a knife. Right. While Jeremy admitted to killing both Mark and Deborah, Jeremy adamantly denied killing or even touching Jacob. Evidence did show that the clothes he had worn that night were covered in Mark's blood, who he had stabbed with such ferocity that it bent the knife in half. But Jacob's blood was only found on one of his shoelaces, despite Jacob's room being covered in blood. His lawyers presented the case that he was love-struck, an immature man who would do anything to keep his girlfriend's affection. When you said that the knife was bent in half, that just shows like what a frenzy that this killing would have been. He was hopped up on so many substances that it could be nothing but a frenzy. So Jacob's blood is only on Jeremy's shoelace. Were they able to find Jasmine's clothing? Was that covered in Jacob's blood? That wasn't in any of the reports. And with Jasmine's case being sealed, it's difficult to know. Do you have the complete chart or do you have... Just bits and pieces of it. Right. But you're right. If he had killed Jacob, his clothing would have had all three people's blood all over it. Right. I think I would expect a lot more blood than just on the shoelace. Right. His lawyers had Jeremy's terminal ill mother testify on his behalf, 
providing Jeremy's backstory and trying to present the image that it was Jasmine and not Jeremy that was the mature one in the relationship and the mastermind that had done the influencing. The jury had a hard time believing that the troubled, now 25-year-old man was under the influence of just a 12-year-old little girl. And it does go against normal reasoning. It's much easier to accept that Jasmine had been the one that was influenced by Jeremy. That's not always the case. Yeah. And Jeremy wasn't functioning at 23. Not at all. He did not have a fully functioning adult brain. And several of his psychiatric reports do testify to that. And he was so desperate to feel loved. He could have easily been manipulated by Jasmine. Mm -hmm. I don't think that she done it purposely. No, I think they're both. I really do think this is a case where they both equally influenced each other into committing murder. Yeah, I agree. On December 15th, 2008, Jeremy received three concurrent life sentences for the Richardson family murders with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. The two other girls that drove with Jasmine and Jeremy after the murder were also charged in connection with the deaths. One who was 15 at the time pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice and was sentenced to 22 months probation. Because she was underage at the time, her name was never released. Huh. The other, Casey Lannister, pleaded guilty to obstruction. She received a one-year house arrest as part of a plea bargain and was then ordered to refrain from drugs and alcohol. During Jasmine's rehabilitation, her extended family stayed in contact with her and was supportive of her. They visited and called regularly. Really? I think that just speaks to what a strong family this was. Yeah. During her treatment, it was surmised that with her developing 12-year-old brain, her prefrontal cortex was years away from fully developing, and she would have been susceptible to Jeremy's grooming, leading her to become so attached to Jeremy that she was willing to eliminate anything that stood between them. So her family believed she was totally manipulated. Yeah, and there were psychology reports that indicated that her brain would have been primed to having an older man manipulate her. In 2009, Jasmine began to be slowly integrated back into society, beginning with supervised walks around her treatment facility in Edmonton, Alberta. At the end of her four-year psychiatric term, she received glowing success reports. For the final years of her sentence, she lived in a group home and then graduated to living alone while she studied at Mount Royal University in Calgary. During that time, she was described as the poster child of rehabilitation and was deemed unlikely to reoffend in her adult life. On May 6, 2016, two weeks after the murder's 10-year anniversary, her mandatory supervision was lifted and her sentence was officially completed. Wow. And has there been any reports of her reoffending at all? No. And because of that, her record has been sealed. No. Yes. Because she was a minor. She was a minor. <gasps> Three counts of first degree murder. Just wiped away. Yes. I didn't even think about that. Wow. That means she could get a job anywhere. Because mm -hmm. she's completely rehabilitated. She's the poster child for it. And on paper has not committed a crime. Right. At the time of her sentence ending, Justice Scott Broker told her, quote, I think your parents and brother would be proud of you. You've indicated through your conduct, you have a desire to atone for what you did. Clearly, you cannot undo the past. 
You can only live each day with the knowledge you can control how you behave and what you do each day. In her final court appearance, Jasmine addressed the judge and thanked him, but made no statements or had any visible emotions of remorse. Jasmine's defense lawyer vouched for her saying, quote, She has made huge gains and huge rehabilitative progress in terms of where she was to where she is today. Society should be satisfied with the fact that the system has worked in this case. And I don't know about you, but these statements just seem off to me. That her parents would be proud and that society should feel satisfied? They somehow seem wrong to express about a person that planned and helped carry out a triple homicide. Yeah, I'm in shock by those statements. Those are some pretty far stretches. And even just that she didn't show remorse during her last appearance in court. Or really at any time during any of her court appearances. Right. Just, oh, look at how much I've grown. During her psych evals, there was mixed reports of whether she was remorseful or not. But during her later ones, they did say that she had at least an understanding of what she had done. Where originally she didn't even have that. And I just don't know how you live with that. I am the queen of feeling guilty. Like you could make me feel guilty about something I didn't even do. I can't imagine having that on my conscience. And the last judge kind of spoke to that. And you get to live with this now. I wonder if it haunts her. I can't imagine it not. Jasmine has changed her name and now lives in an undisclosed location in Canada, living quietly among an unsuspecting community. Wow. So she could be like dating some guy right now and he has no idea. Well, hopefully she would be truthful, but maybe she wouldn't be. Would you? I think I would. (laughs) No way! Really? I think if you're remorseful, then you're going to be truthful about it. But she's not showing remorse and she's just, oh, I was manipulated. And maybe she was. She was 12. It's hard to believe that she wasn't manipulated in some way. Yeah, she had to have been to a degree, as was he. But I think if she was telling the story, it would be like the guy that had me under his control murdered my family. Right. I don't know how much you'd be sharing that you actually did. I think the community she lives in has no idea. Oh, I'm sure they don't. How would she ever be able to go on with her life? Right. And if they're going to put her in society, she needs to be able to do good things to be an upstanding citizen if she can. Right. She needs to be able to function. I guess time will tell, but that just seems so unjust. Well, time won't tell because we don't know who she is. True. Jeremy, too, has changed his name to Jackson May. He remains in custody. In May 2012, he gave up on appealing his sentence. He will not be eligible for parole until 2033. So in 10 years. Right. Wow. For three first-degree murder charges. Vicious, brutal first-degree murder charges, and one of those being a child. Which already doesn't sound like enough time, but it's significantly more than what Jasmine got. Jasmine didn't get time, let's face it. She got some help that she needed and sent on her way. Right. And that is the tragic case of the two dirtbags who lacked any real perspective, and because they could not see past their own selfish desires to be together, murdered three loving family members. The immature despicably wayward, black-hearted Jeremy Steinke and Jasmine Richardson. Wow. I did learn a lot of new things in this case. Being from Canada, we've both heard it before. But there were a lot of things while researching it that I learned as well. And I think one of the saddest parts of this case 
was that to this day, neither have taken responsibility for killing Jacob. They both just say that the other one did it. But they know who killed him. But neither one of them is saying it. One of them is lying. I don't know for sure. Obviously, I can't. But I kind of lean more towards Jeremy's statement. I do too. But I think really, they're just both to blame. Yeah. You know how we joke how it's both? Yeah. (laughs) It's absolutely both. It was a perfect storm for the two of them to come together and make awful decisions. I agree. And Canada is all about rehabilitation, which is a wonderful thing. But in this case, I don't know that justice was served. And so I hope wherever she is, she's gonna prove us all wrong and live this good life. It is possible. We've seen it happen before. Yeah. And hopefully she lives a life that would make her parents proud and her brother and make up for their loss of life. Let's just hope that her and Carla Homolka are not living on the same street. Oh, could you imagine? No, but you'd have no idea. Both of them have changed their names. So true. Well, thank you, Sherry and Brene, for requesting that. And thank you to all of our other listeners for letting us have a 100th episode. And we'll be back next week when Christy brings us another case. Yep, I'll be back with 101. But until then, see ya. Bye. Work, test, work. Pause for the truck. (laughs) (laughs) Why do I create such big, long run-on sentences? You think 100 episodes in that I would know not to do this. You just have to use lots of punctuation. I do. Because you have so much thought all at once and you're just like, I I got to get on there. I got to get on there. Here's 20 bits of information that I need to say in one sentence. (laughs) Her whole podcast is three sentences, you guys. (laughs) True. 19 pages, three sentences. That's and about I right. Just don't have enough breath in me to do that. I'm going to show it to you after. I have okay. it. On Jasmine, uh, on Jasmine 26. On April 20. On oh. April. 26. <laughs> I was like, Jasmine 26? What is that a profile name? No. That, that's, uh, that, that's my biggest. That, that, the, that's, that's the biggest, my, it's so. What is that? (laughs) I hate reading other people's part because he says that like a million times. Just got to start talking like a werewolf. Yeah. I should really take that up. Werewolfies. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. 
Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.